Clay, I know we record this podcast remotely, but I have to tell you this for openers. We're going to set up a little area on the balcony for you, and God help mm. you if you don't use it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I'm very self-conscious about that, so I appreciate it. Did you have a? Uh, you had some, uh, what was it? They call them beans. They call them the food that talks behind your back or something. We had talked about that behind. <laughs> the musical fruit. The musical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. And cheese. Like, it's good to know that cheese still is referenced as a, a smelly food item. I guess it might have, it was probably even stinkier back in 17, 17, 17, 1876. God, did you imagine cheese from the 1800s? Yeah, we haven't gotten to their peaches yet, but they have, they have peaches in the show. Uh, the cheese, they probably wouldn't even make it out there. Well, would they? I don't know what they would do. They wouldn't I transport know. it. I, so uh, during, I think it was during the pandemic, I discovered my favorite show of all time now, which is uh, The Foods That Built America, which is basically all about the uh, rise in, in industrialized food in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and how they turned into these conglomerates like Heinz and all that kind of stuff. Uh, basically, the one thing that I learned is that to a person on that show, all of the um, uh, experts that they talked to were basically like, yeah, before um, manufactured preservatives were a thing you were basically taking your life in your hands anytime you had a meal yeah because it was just like you didn't know what you were getting how old it was whether or not it was fresh yep you were really taking a chance so yep. uh think about that the next time that you look down on a piece of bologna <laughs> yeah i guess that's why you got to eat fresh food immediately well there, there was much right, more yeah. fresh food back then i think than there is now the best i could do now is go into the yard and shoot a rabbit with a bb gun and, and it's probably got worms or something horrible in it because it's a city rabbit so you take what you can get mm. you're not having eb farms bacon or anything they, they say his biscuits have mealworms in it too so Blech. you just can't win we're going to be talking about reconnoitering the rim right after this You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This one's called Reconnoitering the Rim. It was directed by David Guggenheim, his second appearance in a row here, written by Jody Worth. In this episode, the Bella Union, a new saloon, sneaks into town. Swearingen tries to intimidate its owner, Cy Tolliver, while Bill finally manages to win the hand of poker. The loser, Jack McCall, is thrown out of the game, spewing profanity. Brom Garrett confronts Swearingen about the gold claim, threatening to bring the Pinkertons down on his head. Swearingen tells Doherty to kill Garrett and make it look like an accident. Swearingen sees Farnham heading into the Bella Union, leading him to conclude that his hotelier is his Judas goat. Bullock and Star strike a deal with Swearingen for their store's lot with an agreement to no gambling, whoring, or whiskey on the premises. Doherty pinches, pitches is Brom Garrett off a cliff. Ellsworth witnesses the deed. Doherty discovers a thick vein of gold lines the cliff in the cliff, not far from the body. Doherty passes this information along to Swearingen. So here we are with the third episode. What do you think of this one in the uh, the broad strokes? In <clears throat> any way compares to the first two? Anything was different? I think it's it's more of a um, it's more comedic than the first two. Is the big yeah. distinction there? There was yeah. there's a few more jokes in this one. Yeah, this one was definitely funnier. Um, but it's all again. It's all just from the fantastic performances. Like uh, I don't think Swearingen has changed much in the first two episodes, but 
his delivery is hilarious in this episode. Yeah. That the the fart scene is fantastic. Yeah. I want to know who did that legwork. You hit the nail square, Al. Whoever went between them Bella Union people and Artie Simpson be a prime source of information. Do not repeat back to me what I just said in different fucking words. And I want to know who cut the cheese. I'll tell you this for openers. We are going to set off an area on the balcony. And God help whoever doesn't use it, because the next stink I have to smell in this office, and whoever doesn't admit to it is going out the window, into the muck, under their fucking heads, and we'll see how they like farting from that position. Okay? It's sort of That's the mark the mark of a true great Western comedy is whether or not your fart scene is good. Well the uh what's funny about the show is that um I still always kind of wonder if he's talking about something else in that scene, but he's really not. Like there's no mm. he's not making a metaphor or anything like that. He's right, just yeah. it's just because someone's farted in there and it ties into it ties into the themes of the episode. Uh, it does well. yeah <laughs> which is that it really does the episode is to me this episode you can let me know if you disagree this episode is kind of all about trust is mm. like the main storyline about how um metaphorically hubba, hubba, hubba. what's as that the joker one as the joker once said hubba 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 money 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 who can you trust that's right that's <laughs> pretty much pretty much all 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 of, uh, all of life's problems stem from such things uh it's about it's basically about trust. It's a, it's a larger metaphor for when you're trying to build this town and the society that Deadwood is doing. This is the first episode that has dealt largely with how are you going to suss out the relationships between people and like where does trust come from? What mm-hmm. is the point of trust? Uh, and what about people that you can't trust? The other point that kind of feeds into that, it's, it's about intrusion. Um, and I think it's playing with the themes of classic Westerns in the sense of how society um, impedes on the individual in a way. And like this episode is about sussing out what are the trade-offs in that conquering of the individual by society and things like that. So the intrusions here are Al's business has been intruded on by the Bell Union and Wild Bill Hickok's life is being intruded on by his followers, basically. And both of their lives are being impacted in negative ways that they don't really want, but is a byproduct of living within a larger organism of itself. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. the trust aspect is most of the other storyline. So it's about whether Seth and Saul can trust Al where that stands. If Al can trust EB towards the end, uh, the trust that's building between Glamity Jane and Sophia, the little Norwegian girl, and then the kinds of not trust that exist out in the world, which would be like Brahm and Al and Al and the Bella Union and things like that. So, do you have anything you want to say about that before we get into it? Uh, would you disagree with any of that? No, I would. I would agree with that fully. It's uh, that seems to very much be what the episode is about. Um, and uh, it's 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 interesting because um, you've got certain characters who are trying to figure out who they can trust, and then you've got other characters who figure that out just by trusting literally no one. Yep. <laughs> Where Al's solution to it is not punished when he finds out Farnham is lying to him. Uh, he doesn't punish him. He just keeps him on the hook in a way that is beneficial to him in ways that EB doesn't realize. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's funny because <clears throat> as, as I kind of j- I've joked about before, the uh, 
alternate skin Al Swearingen character, Cy Tolliver, basically does the same thing with the dope fiend guy who's been who's on the payroll for Al as a spy, yeah. but is also informing on Al to Tolliver. So yep. Leon, <laughs> the uh, the skanky bearded Leon, as Al calls him. Yeah, it's uh, that's why that's why if you're gonna have a, a hophead or a dope fiend working working for you, you got to have one with a real high tolerance. You do so you can <laughs> so you can have him get his shit and be uh, uh, vulnerable to persuasion that way, but not so much that he can't also work for you. He still has a head on his shoulders. He has a line in this. They they tell him that if he can ask if he can deal, and he says there's not been a dope invented that can stop him from doing that. So he's he's obviously someone who's capable of uh, of getting the job done. You loaded, Leo. Well on the path, Mister Tolliver. That man at the gym has got some serious shit. I know when you make your first report on us to him, you'll remember to say thanks. I hope you're not too fucked up to deal with Deuce first, Leo. Opium ain't been made yet, Mr. Sawyer. They can fuck me up that bad. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think a good place to start would be Wild Bill, maybe because we haven't mm. talked about Wild Bill all that much. Uh, through the first couple, outside of the random lines about just him seeming kind of a little bit pathetic, and maybe he's a yeah. inversion of the classic Western trope. I think this is the first episode that is giving a lot of backstory to Bill and fleshes out where exactly his conflict comes from and where where his um, unease and sort of lack of uh, lack of focus and lack of appreciation for the life that he's living. So he's. It's basically sort of revealed through exposition that he is at this point of his life where he's been doing these sort of traveling shows. He does plays and stuff like that, uh, cashing in on his name, basically, where he is going on these little traveling circuits and getting paid to make appearances and getting paid to do shows and sort of act out this role of the classic Western um, person. And he doesn't seem particularly happy with it. Uh, His identity has been stolen from him in some ways. He... It's hard not to look at it as a kind of like Twitter version of himself. Like mm-hmm. looking at it in the current day, he's basically been Twitter poisoned and he no longer has any refuge where he can escape to and feel like he's actually himself. And he doesn't he doesn't feel that anyone actually understands him in the world, which comes back to the theme of trust. There's no one there that he can really uh, trust outside of this small circle to actually mm. have his best intentions in mind. And it's driven him to the point of being suicidal, it seems like. Um, what did you think about Bill? Did, is this a, a decent, the most interesting Bill episode so far? Is this a, are they doing anything wrong with Bill at this point for you? Um, no, I I thought it was good for him. I mean, the, the tough thing about him is they haven't really done much with him. Even through this one, he's just sort of like... You know, they give him a little bit more, but he's still sort of relegated to being in the corner playing cards for the most part. Yeah. Um, that scene, the scene outside is nice uh, when he's helping build the uh, shop with uh, Saul and Both Seth. Saul and, yeah, and Charlie Utter. <clears throat> yeah, that, that's, that scene's nice when it gets broken up by the, the, the dumbasses. Anyways... Me and Saul are sure grateful you and Mr. Utter taking the time to help. Go ahead about your work, Mr. Hickok. You won't bother you no more. Charlie encourages me being in your company. He feels you're a positive influence. No reason 
you'd remember me, but I saw you marshal in Abilene. Saw you blow one cocksucker's head right the fuck off his neck. I also saw you dead center three bullets on an ace of spade playing card at 25 goddamn paces. Some other loud mouth like this loud mouth I just sorted out said you doctored that playing card before you ever attached it to that tree. And did you sort him out too? Goddamn right. Well, thanks for all that help. Now it's time you moved along. I sorted him out proper. Gouged out the both of his fucking eyes. All right, friend. Move along. I'm tired of listening to you. You're tired of listening? That's what he said. Oh. I guess everybody's talking to me now. Get the fuck out of here. All right, I hear you, Wild Bill. You don't need to insult me twice. I'll tell you what. I hope you get what's coming to you, and I hope it's sooner rather than later. I hope they sort you out, and I get to see it. I hope you're gunshot and die slow, and I hope they get you in this camp. And it's, you know, it's, it, I really like the, how the one guy's there being very complimentary. Uh, well, sort of being Which complimentary. One? The, uh, one, the, one's the guy just, who's one's just uh, stupider than the other one, I think. Yeah. Not the one who tells him his acting sucks. The other guy. Yeah. <clears throat> how he's being very complimentary of this stage show and, uh, projecting this onto the man. And once Bill basically kind of like shatters that for him, he immediately turns into uh, it's it reminds me of uh, there's a fantastic. Have you seen the King of Comedy? The yeah. Martin Scorsese movie? Yeah, there's a fantastic scene where uh, Jerry Lewis, who plays this Johnny Carson analog, is walking down the street in New York and all these people are you recognize him because he's like the most famous person on TV and he walks by this old woman who's on the phone with her son and she tries to get him like he doesn't stop. He just keeps walking. But in that, in that uh, moment, she tries to get him to say hi to her son and he just waves her off yep. and she just goes, Oh my God, do you think you could, I hope you get cancer. I hope you get cancer and die. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, but it's very much that thing where you, once you shatter the illusion, uh, people can get very angry about it. Yeah. At the same time, to make another reference to a show that's not Deadwood or a thing that's not Deadwood. Um, it reminded me a bit of uh, Wild Bill's situation reminded me a bit of um, Robert Ford at the end of the assassination of Jesse James yep. by the coward Robert Ford because what he ends up doing after he kills Jesse James is he, spoiler, uh, is he basically goes on the vaudeville circuit reenacting the killing of Jesse James. Right. And you watch him turn from sort of a hero the first couple times into someone who is reviled for what he had done because Jesse James has turned into this sort of folk hero and eclipsed his own uh, um, reputation. Yeah, reputation. And basically Robert Ford is, you get this instance, this uh, sequence of Robert Ford basically being condemned to reliving the the murder of his friend over and over on stage which is kind of what bill's going through where he is just he's relegated to a stage show full of shit that he probably didn't do and was probably fixed like the shooting of the card thing was probably fixed yep you know it's he's he's just a, a sideshow attraction at that point yeah it, it, and it feeds into 
he's also at a point where anything he does can't really he feels responsible for the outcomes of things. So you, you were saying like the card trick is probably fixed, but there's that other guy, the, the soap guy makes a return and he's talking to yes. Charlie about how he's going to basically set up the same scam where they're going to, they're going to have Bill do a shooting competition and then they're going to sell the memorabilia afterwards, merching basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it also is into, so Bill's actions, he feels like he can't really, really control the outcomes because once he, once he spins on the, the second idiot who's accosting him while they're building and he says like go fuck yourself like get out of here and that guy turns on him or it has the thing before that he's like he's like i sorted that guy out for you bill and he's like oh yeah did you sort him out of him he's like i sorted him out real good gouged out his fucking eyes and it's like yeah. this, it upsets all of them right because it's like bill's not through any fault of bill his actions have caused immense suffering in the world yeah. is the problem that he's trying to live with and uh, the idiots that it cost him are unaware of it and it is it's that scene from king of comedy and it's also just like the once you cultivate an audience online or something like that once you spurn them they become incredibly jaded towards you it's like an ultimate yeah. betrayal it's yeah. like the 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 connection it's always funny the connection that these people feel with wild bill is something that like i'm sort of conscious with um for like an online thing which is like do you ever listen to do you ever like this weird thing I do is that like I'll listen to a podcast, right? And mm-hmm. I'll get into a podcast and at a certain point there's like this subconscious thought that goes along that you're like, why haven't they asked me to be on their podcast? <laughs> you feel <laughs> you feel like they don't know who I am, right? Yeah. But you feel that because you're so familiar with them that there is some kind of connection there. And that's what Bill is going through, I think with yeah. these guys. Yeah. Yeah, I I um I sympathize with it a bit, obviously not to the same extent that he has to deal with or even other people that I know have to deal with. But uh, I I was getting Comic-Con flashes a bit because there's always someone who comes over and will just talk to you for hours. Yeah. Uh, unless you sh- unless you cut them off, and it's difficult to I find it very difficult to cut people off because I don't want to be an asshole. But yeah. I get the more it happens, the easier it becomes to do. I think. But like there, I remember one time I was at a show and. Uh, it was very surreal because there was this guy. He was probably like six foot five, um, probably three hundred something pounds, dressed like V from V for Vendetta. Yeah, and he basically just stood <laughs> at my table and explained to me uh, the the history of the Venom symbiote for like twenty five minutes. <laughs> and I'm just giving him like, yeah, oh, that's yeah, I nope, didn't read that one. And it's just like they he just kept going. Yep. And obviously that wasn't directed at me or or didn't have anything to do with me, but you know, unless he was very saying, confused about your uh, the yeah, name is very yes. similar or something. As they say in Glen Gary Glen Ross, sometimes people just like talking to salesmen. <laughs> but um that's, that's the second time on that's the second show this week I've made that reference. Uh <laughs> have you just watched Glen Gary Glen Ross? No, I just I just find it eternally applicable. Yes. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of it, it, it's it feels a bit like when you're when you're talking online stuff, right? I I always find it so fascinating when someone of uh, public note, uh, not even like just a known figure, uh, says something or makes a statement, and then like like saying like I really liked this movie, I thought it was good, and then someone just completely random person is like well i liked this movie better and it's like cool yep. what do you want me to do with that like there's, no, there's, nowhere, there's nowhere there's else to go with it you either agree or you disagree which yeah it's just like there's this 
I think being a public figure, um, large or small, comes with a, an erosion of this idea that you that you can actually tell people to don't talk to me. Yes, like it's like if you are if you are online, if you say something online, you are opening yourself up to uh, any sort of comment commentary on what you've just said, criticism, interaction, and it's just like. I it's it's a it's such a strange thing that as soon as you put yourself out there publicly it's like there's a, a level of oh no you have to talk to me that people yeah. expect and it's it's just very it's very strange. Yeah, it's um and I and I think that like the Twitter aspect of it again is that like you know the refrain is that Twitter is not real life and it's it feeds into Bill's thing here which is that Bill does not feel that he is accurately represented or that he doesn't mm-hmm. there is no there's no sense of who he is. He's he's basically like this. The story of Bill is basically the story of the retiree who's scared to retire at the end of their life because they've poured everything into their job and there is nothing else. Once that happens, like once you mm-hmm. stop working, you're not really sure what you do at that point. And I feel that that affects a lot of the population. Um, and it's probably something people should work on before they get to their retirement, I suppose. But Bill is kind of the same way. He's at he's at a point in his life where he doesn't know what there is to do after this and all of yeah. the options that he's given are not interested to him. So instead he's going to gamble and drink and not accomplish anything. Yeah. My dad worked with, with a couple people who um, were basically well past retirement, but they just kept coming in. Like they weren't even interested and, and it's not like, and cause only cause it was literally the only thing that they had to do. Yep. And yeah, it's when you don't have that anymore, it, it, uh, it can be very difficult to uh, adjust. Yeah, it's it's either that it's either, it's either you have nothing going on or you're in the middle of a recession and your uh, retirement fund is down thirty percent. Yeah, and you're like, yes. I gotta wait one more year until this bounces back. Um, I like the uh, the symbolism of the bill scene at the very end of it. Uh, he uses great language. The show always uses great language. He says, "I'm going to desert you. Uh, I have to go do poker and drink some whiskey." I like the way he dresses himself. He puts on his hat very performatively as if he's like sarcastically putting on his cowboy hat before he moves mm-hmm. on. And uh, the finest shot is excellent direction is that um, Bill turns his back on and walks away from something that everyone else is building together. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And so I think that it is just a really well done scene and uh, not sure about uh, where Bill is going to. He skipped over the early scene, which kind of drives him to that point, which yeah. has... Um, where he's playing cards against Jack McCall, uh, which mm-hmm. I just love the the barbs between those two. Part to the club flush. Well, that's one in a row for you, Wild Bill. Who's hungry? What the hell damn time is it anyway? Sure you want to quit playing, Jack? The game's always between you and getting called a cunt. Meeting's adjourned, fellas. Take it outside. That dropped eye of yours looks like the hood on a cunt to me, Jack. When you talk, your mouth looks like a cunt moving. I ain't gonna get in no gunfight with you, Hickok. But you will run your cunt mouth at me. And I will take it to play poker. Um, yeah, that was the uh, the line of the episode for me was... The game's always between you and getting called a cunt. Getting called a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> you want to quit playing, Jack? The game's always between you and getting called a cunt. That droop dive of yours looks like the hood of a cunt to me, Jack. When you talk, your mouth looks like a cunt moving. 
And Jack says, I ain't going to get in no gunfight with you, Hickok. And Bill says, but you will run your cunt mouth at me, and I will take it to play poker. Uh, another Twitter analog there, right? That's, yeah, what, everyone, that's yeah. what everyone wants to respond yeah. to. You, 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 have, you have nothing on me, and in this world, it's not acceptable to kill someone unless they draw on you first, right? We've established that right. in previous episodes. Yeah. And McCall is too much of a pussy to actually do it. So this is Wild Bill calling that out, which is that he's just a pussy, and he, all he's going to do is run his mouth at him because that's all he can do. Yeah, yeah. I'll, Twitter analog also at the end there in that final line because, you know, you could always just leave Twitter, but people don't. Yeah, and he's gonna stick. He's gonna stick around to play poker. Right. Yeah, it's just stick around to play poker, and that's that's what the game is. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's what the game is. Yeah, that's um, and uh, I, the other the other interesting sort of uh, like circular thing around Bill is his passing out in the hotel. Uh, floor to, to rest, which I think is interesting. What, what do you think is going mm. on in that scene? I'm always, um, me and Amy were kind of uh, talking about it and having a little bit of a disagreement. What, what do you think is going on between him, <coughs> Jane, and Charlie in the rooms and stuff like that? Um, I wasn't sure. I, I, I guess I kind of just assumed that he well, I guess it's not it's not exactly what Jane says it is. I don't know if he's doing it exactly out of the kindness of his heart to not wake up the kid. I think maybe it just might be out of the three places, the only one that actually gives him some privacy, like leaves him yeah. alone. Like yeah. he because he knows if he goes into the room with Jane, she's not going to stop talking. And Charlie obviously is not going to stop talking. So he may as well just lay down on the floor in the middle yeah. of the in the middle of the aisle. Yeah. I think it's a combination of that or and just like passing out from exha- exhaustion there. It, it's it's definitely not what Jane thinks it is, which is that he's doing it out of sort of the like nobility of himself. Yeah. And he doesn't want to in- intrude on them and stuff like that. But at least the funny scenes between Jane and Charlie arguing about it as, as he's laying on the floor and like, where, where, where were you, Charlie, when he when he needed to get into your room and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think it's a... You know, Jane has the same positive outlook on Bill that the other followers do before he tells them to fuck off, and he's never told mm. her to fuck off. Uh, so she has that piney sky outlook on him. Yeah, Jane continues to be my my favorite character in the show. I find her so fascinating in the way that they're playing her, and she she goes through that um, she goes through the thing that every every teenager goes through the first time they they go on a trip with like a person of the opposite sex where you're like well i mean there's only one bed in the room and she can't go in the other room because someone else is in there so she's gonna have to come in here and i mean we may as well just share nothing's gonna happen obviously but if it does i mean that's just what happens she tells sophia that if you wake up and you see me and bill it's just the situation of the room there's nothing there's nothing else going on yeah and it's just it's such it's so charming in how uh, naive her her viewpoint on on Bill is, because clearly she's in love with him, um, but she just tries to keep up this uh, facade for herself, more for others than for herself. But um, like the 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 shot where they where Bill comes in and, and settles the room debate with Farnham, yeah, and he says that he'll just. Uh, he, the girl and Jane will move into his room or something, and they do that close up of her looking away from him. Yeah, she starts to like kind of smile and blush a little bit. Yeah, really, really good. <laughs> and also, I think 
I think Charlie might be in love with him a bit too, because he seemed pretty pretty eager to to share a room with him as well. He well, he wants the double date too to go out yeah. with them. Yeah, they, they um, they just they have that relationship. Uh, they both have a similar relationship, and they to to him they kind of act like bickering children in front of him. Right, like they're they're, yeah. they're constantly arguing with each other, and Bill has to sort them out and stuff like that. I I love them. <laughs> um, what I just one of my funnier minor Jane things is that she can't get a room at the hotel because Farnham doesn't like her. Basically. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that the the back and forth with Farnham and um and her is just very funny. Uh, she calls him like an Undertaker looking son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, he's <laughs> a sad story that's none of my affairs, madam. If I've guessed your sex correct, um, <laughs> which is which is good. I said they'd find a way to stop me. If it's raising room rates, you have to go ahead and raise them. Rates aren't the only factor. There's a waiting list for occupancy. Undertaker-looking son of a bitch. This little girl's doctor ordered to live indoors, and I'm assigned to change your dressings. A sad story. That's none of my affair, madam. If I guess your sex correct. What's the problem, innkeeper? Mr. Hickok. Little one took fever in that wagon last night, Bill. And I thought Jane and her could stay in my room, and I'd move back in with you. I'm not in opposition, sir. Just the opposite. Who wouldn't want to accommodate a sick little girl? But the Simpson Hotel's closed its doors. If Mr. Utter's vacating, shouldn't these people that have been trying me all morning get first call? Isn't that simple fairness? He don't give fuck all for fairness. He just don't want me in here. How about if he stays in his room and the lady moves in with me? That way no one's vacating nothing. That would outflank the checkout issue, but it might raise questions of decorum. With who? No one of consequence, I suppose. Let her in. I'm going to get some breakfast. And Bill comes in and sorts it out. Um, the other little minor funny line from that is, um, how about the, if he stays in my room and the lady moves in with me, that way no one's vacating. Um, and Farnham says, that would outflank the checkout issues, but it might raise questions of decorum. And Bill says, with who? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he says, no one of import. <laughs> Um, it's just good, uh, funny stuff. Farnham is, um, Farnham's one of my favorite characters. He's just such a, he has a little bit of a pivotal role in this one, but his, um, I love his dialogue. He's just, he's super, I mean, he's, he's just clearly such a little toady and he's, his probably his defining personality con, uh, like traits is that he is the kind of person who is a toady and is completely subservient to the true power players, but will always take out his superiority on people he deems inferior to himself. Um, oh, yeah. Jane is his target of this one, and yeah. he eventually picks on other targets. Oh, Mr. Wu in the previous episode where he did the, like, piggy E.T., piggy E.T., you, you leering yeah. heathen or whatever. He's quick to um, be difficult with people that he judges to be less than him. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing about power, right? Like, it doesn't... That's what's so fascinating to me about power at any level is it doesn't matter how much or how little people have if there is an instance in which you know if if you if you have the opportunity to exploit it people will do it I'm not saying everybody but like the uh the um the kind of person who would uh, exploit it on a national po- po- political level is the same type of person who would exploit it on like a, uh, a town ca- yeah. student council level. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's just something about it, something about having something over other people. It's all relative. <clears throat> yeah. And it's Barnabas. 
Yeah, and uh, Farnham's definitely one of those people who will do that. And yeah. he, man, I, he's really good too. Man, that actor is so good. He that actor is so fascinating to me because he is both always playing the same guy, but always unique in every character he plays. Yep. Like I don't think that this character is anything like J.F. Sebastian from Blade Runner. Yep. But he kind of plays him the same way because it's just kind of how he is. Yeah. <laughs> but they're but they they have two very different results, and he's obviously very different than Carl, uh, awesome Carl yep. from Batman. Yep. <laughs> he's, I think he's he's just a he's a great actor at this personality. When he walks into the Bella Union, he's like, my goodness, my gracious, right? The best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, has his, the, the talk with his, Eddie about it. Yeah, his big the his big downfall is he didn't keep the gimmick up when he left. Because if he had walked out of there being like, Whoo boy, yep. what an establishment. This place is amazing. <laughs> Al might not have immediately <laughs> zeroed in on him, yeah. Yeah, he's not um he's not like Brahm in this episode where Alma watches him out the window and he's talking to himself, practicing oh, his conflict. So good. That is so good. Um yeah, far so uh we're a little bit all over the place. There's a lot in these episodes. Um do we want to talk about the Bella Union crew? This is their first appearance. I, sure. guess, I guess we should. Yeah, I was. Um, I so, <laughs> I as I said in the first episode, I haven't watched this show in probably fifteen years. I've only watched it once. I don't know. I can tell you, I don't know what happens in the rest of this season because there are three things that I remember from the season from this first season. And two of them have already happened. Okay, and you're, I, you're running, running out of runway at the end here. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't remember uh, the Bella Union showing up so early. I, in my head, I almost thought that they didn't show up until season two. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that they were in episode three, and um, I kind of remembered. Uh, what the hell is his name? Cy Tolliver. No, the 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 fancy pants Alma Garrett. Oh, Garrett, yeah. Brom Garrett I, I, is the husband. Brom, Brom Garrett, yeah. I I remembered him dying, but I didn't rem- I rem- kind of remembered it being sort of early, but I still also didn't realize it was so early. Yeah. But uh but yeah, I I was surprised to see Powers Booth so quickly. What do you I I guess before we get into the Bell Union, what do you think of the pacing so far in the show? Um I guess you I guess you're just judging on that, you seem you maybe it's kind of a false memory playing tricks on you, but you seem to be implying that it's happening quicker than you would expect. Yeah, I, I it it is, but I also don't know what I would do differently. Um I think the Bella Union feels quick only because bringing in a competitor saloon and brothel type place kinda feels like something you do season two. Yeah, yeah, like where it's like, well, we kind of we've done a lot with Al. What what haven't we done? Oh, well, what if we put him up against someone who's just like him? You know that kind of thing. Yeah, um, a little bit. Especially behind- when there's. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, especially when there's so much other stuff going on, uh, involving. I mean, Al's involved in everything. Yeah. So I understand thematically why it makes sense, but um, as far as pacing, it does feel a little quick. A little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff is that, as we mentioned earlier, Powers Booth was supposed to play Swearingen until he got cancer, and then he had to go mm-hmm. into treatment for it, and they, they couldn't delay the start of the show. Um, he was given this role as a kind of compensation for that part. So he is delayed in arriving, much in the way that Booth was delayed in arriving to the to the show itself. I am, um, I think that, I th- I think the show is quick. 
and it's 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 going through its business very quickly. Uh, but I, I still just think it's such a, a strength of the writing that it's like everything feels fully fleshed out to me, yeah, really. Yeah, like there, there's no sense of this is happening too fast or or on the other side, we're like lingering on characters too long. Yeah. Um, characters' scenes mean a lot to them. There, there is no sort of wasted scene because the show can't yeah. afford to have a wasted scene. So someone like Brom yeah. Garrett has been in limited screen time, but you've gotten every story beat has just been like expertly laid out to get you to the point where he needs to be only three episodes in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Similar to the, um, what I was saying about, uh, Alma's laudanum addiction in the last episode, this was one where I felt this episode was one where I felt like, Oh, they're setting up this Farnham thing to be something that gets drawn out and then at the end he's just like it was me i did it i'm sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, okay <laughs> and then they pivot they pivot on that instead of drawing it out in the way that you know traditionally you might yes. they pivot and turn it into something else um <clears throat> so yeah they're they're not um they're being realistic with the things that they're setting up where they're they aren't trying to 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 draw them uh really really thin to the point where you're kind of uh uh, just begging for them to be o- these threads to be over. Yeah, they they hustle through them, but they are um, quality as as much as they they are quantity. What's um, I, I guess the surprising thing to me on multiple rewatch is that they they don't really linger on like the concept of something is being built here is almost immediate. They don't spend very yeah. long with Swearingen in complete control of the town. Really, it's only two episodes. Right. Yes. So he most most shows I feel like would go a whole season, a whole season where it's with just this. Yeah. Al running everything. Yeah. Right, and then the, the season finale is like a minor victory over him or something like that. But right. Yeah. This show is, I think, Milch is much more interested in the development aspect, so they're kind of just shortcutting that to get to the point where now things are starting to have to change, and we we've. We have not had a lot of time to deal with Al to this point to understand him, to kind of understand what this episode is doing to him, which is that it is switching him from you can't always kill your way out of all these problems into something. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the difference. It feels like it's happening relatively quick and that you would almost have, a, a, as you're saying, a season of evil Al who does nothing good for anybody. But it, it's already... And I wouldn't say he, he does good for things because the the choices he's made so far... Or like you said in the, the previous episode, like he's making quote unquote the right choice that is good for the long term, but he's doing it out of selfish self interest at this point. It just yeah. happens to be good for everybody else that these are the decisions he's making, whether it's um not killing Sophia and he kills the journeyman or the, the roadman or whatever that guy yep. was called, or this one where he decides not to kill Farnham um and instead use him to further goods, but it also builds on the theme of like you 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 eventually do have to trust people. So, I mean, before we get to the to that scene, it is the Bella Union, back to them. Uh, what's interesting to me about the Bella Union scene is that it's, again, we haven't spent much time with Al, but it's the first sequence where Al is the underdog in a discussion where he's trying to get information from somebody, and he is right. not good yeah. at it, and he can't, he can't do the things that he wants to when talking to this group. Well, here we are, settling the world's problems. <laughs> and I've been wondering, Cy... Um... Perhaps we should talk about our areas of overlap so we're not at each other's throats. Give me a for instance, Al. Our women? Would we want to agree on rates? Well, far as pussy Al, we'll want to let the market sort itself out. Sounds to me like I'm up against specialty acts. 
How about table games? Any overlap there? We'll be featuring craps, Al. I played that in Chicago. I don't offer it myself. Gets these hoople heads confused, you know? That's one area of overlap avoided. What about Pharaoh? We'll have it. That decision hard and fast. I just don't see overlap being a problem, Al, even where we duplicate. We're offering different atmospheres. You're a pioneer in type, a trailblazer type. You're gonna draw a trailblazing element. Meaning I get the ones that don't wash. Must cut through the stink, though, when they walk in with those sacks full of gold. Oh, the money spends, definitely. Anyways, thanks for the neighborly visit. Yeah, good to meet you. Very good luck to you. You're opening at 8 o'clock, huh? That's what we're aiming at. 8 o'clock! Good for you. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, you know, even from... He's wearing his silly-ass bow tie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah, the get-go, he actually has to put on real clothes yep. instead of just underwear with a jacket over it. Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's he hasn't had to – it's it's clear from the outset of the show that he hasn't – he has no competition. And so he doesn't really need he keeps it to try. Way. Yeah, he's, yeah he's, he he, the only reason way. these guys snuck in is because of the machinations with Farnham's sort of loose tongue, basically, that caused that to Yeah. Happen. And so when he actually has to – and he is presented as such a – uh, hard ass um, criminal genius, but when you, they present him with having to deal with Tolliver, I really like that scene because you know I was joking. I'm joking about the, the reskin thing, but they're actually played so differently, Very and different, yeah. I really really like the contrast. Where Powers Booth is a, a man of much fewer words and much more. Um, he chooses his spots a bit more, whereas yep. Al is very verbose and very theatrical. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a really good setup for um, a contrast between them going forward. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, you, you, I, you do. I think it was in the Seppenwall review. You wonder whether or not Swearingen played by Booth would be Cy Tolliver or if this is a decision that they've made yeah. to separate them a little bit from each other. Yeah, because I think powers booth could do not obviously the same way but i i don't think he would have a problem handling swear engine as a character as written yep but i think it would have been a mistake to try to equal that energy so i think it was a really good idea to to um to go the other way with him a bit yeah and, and the in the larger like the 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 like the macro organism or whatever of the bell union which is this three-headed dragon of Joni stubbs i Tolliver, and eddie sawyer um it also contrasts with Al in that the underlings of Cy Tolliver are competent at their jobs, and Al, yes, is, Al is playing yes. with a, a D squad that can't that can't keep up yeah. with the, uh, what's going on over there. Always, always happy to see Ricky J and stuff. That guy is uh, a, a pleasure every time he shows up. Yeah, both of them, are, uh, Powers and Powers Booth and uh, Ricky J are both passed on at this point. That's too. true. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I the the thing I love about that scene though is it's like Swearingen comes in basically one tick below putting on a fake mustache and being like well hello my good man i've just walked in from out of town definitely not from the saloon across the street not a hotel and anymore I, yeah. eh? not a hotel yep. mm, what kind of games do you have here i've never played a game <laughs> in my life but i would love to know and but his bad his bad with his bad insults where they tell him they play craps and he's like oh i i couldn't we couldn't do that because the hoople heads get too confused about yes. it yeah I would also like everybody to know that as I did that fake voice, 
I did hold my finger up to under my nose like I had a fake mustache on, <laughs> which is extra silly because I have a real mustache because of my beard. So yeah, yeah. Method acting just, is what I'm saying. Just the, the stacked mustache, which is also what they sell at the Bella Union, I think. Um, so Daniel Day Lewis, Jared Leto, and me. Uh, Mount Rushmore of Method. <laughs> Swearingen in that scene. Um, Cy Tolliver also handles him well. He handles Swearingen's insults effectively. The mm-hmm. the thing that the thing that they get out is that you're saying Tolliver's a man of few words, but Swearingen has that line about like you people must have trained with the heathens to come upon us unbeknownst, and they don't right, react yeah. to it. They're like they yeah. there is a Tolliver can't be baited by Al into because what I read it as is that what Swearingen is trying to do is he's doing what is so effective against someone like Bullock. Right, which is to irritate his opposition into exposing their weakness in their hand at that point. Mm-hmm. And Tolliver and the Bella Union are too organized and too, too structured to let it bother them. Um, and so Swearingen struggles in that scene to figure things out. He starts, one of the reviews said that he starts sounding like EB when he says that, like, well, let's find areas of overlap with each other, which is just right, like yeah. a wordy sort of like. Uh, verbal soup that Farnham would say. So he he kind of turns into that, um, and they handle him pretty effectively. Joni has a really good comeback. I can't remember exactly what the line is, but they set her up pretty well to be someone who's very uh, capable and sharp and quick. Yeah, he says um, <clears throat> it's the uh, it's the French line. Oh, that's right. Yes, he, he's, he's like like we've yeah. we've given the Sioux a long term ass fucking. Forgive my French, and she says I speak French. Yes, yeah, that was good. Throws a good reaction from McShane too. He 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 realizes that um, she's not a not a shrinking violet, but she's not um, just sort of like a uh, like lead pros- like for like lead prostitute. Like she's actually kind of a someone he has to consider about what she's thinking and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good. I like that crew. Other than that, you don't get too much of Cy Tolliver. You just get the sense that they are aware of what's going on at the end with uh, Leon sort of reveals that he's doing the do- the old double flip on Swearingen and stuff like that. They tell him to keep an eye on it. They And the Bell Union crew is aware of what Al is trying to do with them. They're aware that he's casing the joint, I think, as Cy Tolliver calls it. Um, anything else about the, the Bell Union folks? I don't think so. Much, uh, <clears throat> um, much prettier women there. Yep, they're the, they're the high <laughs> At class. At least more put class. together, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Solver says something about like you're the you're the pioneering type. They'll, they'll come to you or whatever. Uh, right. Yeah. He yeah, says the yeah. ones who can't read or the ones who stink or something like that, which it is. Uh, they brought in the high class um, games and women and stuff like that, and Al will be left with whatever else is going on. Also, like when, when E.B. comes over after Al is on his balcony watching the grand opening of the Bell Union, E.B. Farnham comes in and says, what a nice night. Pretty good night for a Monday, Al. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Trying to talk his way out of it. Um, so I guess it's Brom that's left here. Mm-hmm. Well, there, yeah, there's a lot more. The Brom it's a name is, you don't get much anymore, Brom. No, Brom. I don't know if it's one M or two. Maybe it's Bromward or something like that. Um He's been another similar person, similar to Wild Bill, that we haven't had a lot to talk about until this point. But this is his kind of the episode where he exposes himself, um, not in that way, not in the Nick Offerman way. But uh, he basically shows his flaws as a character 
to the fullest extent possible in yeah. this episode. Yeah, I I was I found this interesting because the 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 thing that I found most interesting about it actually was um Alma Alma's end of of it because she actually she goes out of her way to to recommend the right course of action or the safer course of action where she says okay you know what we screwed up it sucks let's just count it as an adventure that we lost the money on let's just get out of here and she, and he says no to that and then she dopes herself up and then he's then she's like why don't you go take a walk and plan your argument then like so like yep. she she ends up playing both sides i don't mean like strategically but she while she's sober she makes an appeal to him that maybe they just get out of there and then once he says he's resigned to not do that she basically shuts herself down yeah and just goes along with whatever he wants to do the uh, uh, another a minor plot in this one that has no dialogue spoken is that the women are trying to make contact with each other in this you have alma and jane see each other through the door and then jane slams mm-hmm. the door and then at the end of this it's the uh the episode trixie looks out across the way and sees alma looking out across the main street Mm-hmm. Uh, the women are isolated from each other and they have not interacted with each other to this point. And so they're kind of at the the whim of the men in this one. And I think I always interpret as Alma is playing the good 1870s wife to her husband there where she can't, mm-hmm. she can't too directly challenge him in what he's doing. So she has this sort of like, she has to sort of pussyfoot around the edges of like just telling him not to go and not to do anything and to let him make the decision. Um, I like the, the sequence where, where the, the scene in the dialogue where he asks her about why she takes the medicine and he says that he took some because he had a headache and he didn't like the floaty, dull, dead sensation that it gave him. It wasn't any relief. Um, and she says, well, there must be a difference between the sexes and how the medicine operates or something like that, which is just basically yeah. the like you... Um, my foolish husband is is not able to comprehend what's going on here. Yeah, she basically gives him an out to to folk to like save face, pre- pre- save face, and save face with their marriage. You know, yeah. and then when he doesn't take it, she's basically like, "Ah, fuck this guy." No, I mean, because Brahm has proven to not be incredibly. He, He's he's obviously a New York elite and wealthy and everything, right. but he's obviously not very intelligent. When when he hire or tries to hire Wild Bill to get his money back, they're like, "You're the guys who dealt with these people previously are no longer with us." And he's like, "I understand. <laughs> I will go ask Al Swearingen." And they have that funny thing with Bill, Bill Hickok is I don't think he took your point quite. I think he quite yeah. missed it. I know. I real. I did like when Charlie was like, "When I moved into that guy's room, there was a fresh blood stain." On doesn't the say. Floor. Yeah, it doesn't say blood. Just says there was a fresh stain, and that man left without with a quite a bit less blood and moved out of town. Yeah. <laughs> and then Prom just misinterprets it as like, "Yes, they there is no honor amongst thieves. They will kill each other." It's like, well, that's not quite the point that we're trying to make to you, my friend. But yeah, yeah, Brom is um, and so Brom confronts Swearingen. He gets completely manhandled by him not understanding what's going on uh i really love the pathetic last like second to last line he has which is should i go get climbing gear <laughs> before they yes. go <laughs> <laughs> oh he's such a twerp. He's, a twerp he's um one of the reviews just said it succinctly and perfectly is that brahm is trying to act tough in a place where everyone else doesn't need to act um, right 
yeah. and that's his that's his failure. Are you familiar with the Pinkertons as well? Do you understand that uh, sort of reference? Yeah, abstractly. I I, I it's sort of, it's like a forerunner to private investigators or something, right? Sort of. They they came they were they were like a private police force that came out of the Civil War. They started as like they had prevented an Abraham Lincoln assassination. Um, an earlier one, just just one, just, yeah, just the, just the one. They didn't get the good one, unfortunately. Uh, cue cue the clip of uh, Happy Gilmore turning to his caddy and saying, "Where you, where were you on that one?" <laughs> yeah, they, obviously, he didn't want to pay the higher bills or whatever when that came in. They they moved after that into a. Um, they're basically a private police detective agency for the rich elites of America early in their history. So they were prominently involved in union busting and would sort of like uh, send moles into union organizations and sort of break things up and they would cause riots mm-hmm. and kill people and stuff like that. So they were seen as a way to like for the, uh, the wealthy elites to keep working class people down. Uh, here, that's obviously a reference because Brahm says like, I can't talk to them. My father's the only one who can talk to them. Mm-hmm. And it's another sense of society working in on on individuals, which is that Al obviously doesn't want them out there because they're going to ruin everything that he's set up. But it's also the the prior the prior societal stuff that's been like created to set people or to hold people down is no longer applicable in Deadwood, and so it's a you know they're trying to escape this in this new area, and to bring that out is to usher in the stuff that Al just does not want to happen outside of actually stopping his plot or whatever. It's it's a um, it's a force that he does not want in this area at this point. Yeah, I'm trying my best to remember uh, the literature class I took six, 16 years ago where we talked about uh, detective fiction. Yeah, but I believe the Pinkerton the Pinkertons is where the at least the the logo of the eyeball, which became the shorthand for private eye, originates with them. I think. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I don't. I'm not 100 sure, but I think I think there's there's a connection in there where the Pinkertons then turned into what became uh, colloquially known as private investigators. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one thing I was trying to suss out, I think it'd go either way. Um, is Al actively concerned there or is he still putting up a front where he's like, Oh, well we wouldn't want that to happen. Now, you know, he kind of, he kind of, I feel like it's a, it's a, he's, he's less, facetious there than usual i think he is kind of concerned yeah I mean, obviously obviously he kills the guy but dan doherty thought you were dead yes i didn't go to the claim this morning you should have told him i've had him here the last several hours in tears dan look he's alive thank god yes i chose not to go to the claim whiskey rum snatch frankly al i'm here to speak with you and i'm not to be distracted and proceed, my son. Speak frankly. We needn't reach the question of whether my claim has pinched out, as the saying goes, or whether it was a sham proposition to begin with. Let's just say I've lost faith in the property. Have you? And I want my $20,000 back. In the heat, you've confused me with Tim Driscoll. I think we're both aware, Al, that Driscoll's no longer in camp. And because I believe you colluded with Tim Driscoll and perhaps were in cahoots with other parties as well, I require satisfaction from you. It's the heat again, Brahm. I don't collude. I don't cahoot. Al, are you familiar with the Pinkerton Agency? Why? Pursuing its business interests, my family's had several occasions to engage the Pinkertons. 
We maintain friendly relations. I prefer we two settle this as gentlemen, but if need be, the Pinkertons can be made a party to our dispute. Has he asked you to reconnoiter the rims with him at all? Never. Did he ask to and you refused? Didn't get around to it, Al. Thought he was in for the long haul. What are you talking about specifically? The gold you found washed down from somewhere. That's the law of gravity. And your claim runs rim to rim the width of the fucking gulch. So the original deposit the gold you found washed down from is likely on your claim above, near one of the rims. And that's what you feel I should reconnoiter? First place the Pinkertons would look. Unless I'm fucking wrong. No, that's how they operate. So if he asked you, would you reconnoiter the rims with him? Hell, I, I waited out there all morning. Is that a yes or a no? Yeah. I'd be happy to reconnoiter the rims with him. And if Dan's in my good faith reconnoitering don't show the source of the gold, do you then make restitution now? Or do I have recourse to the agency? If at that point you ask, yes, I'll make restitution, all rights and wrongs aside, because you've got me by the fucking balls. Let me go home and change. Uh, do I need climbing gear? You might want to bring a pickaxe. Bye, then. Make it look like an accident. Yeah, about the Pinkertons. Yeah, yeah he's, he's legitimately concerned. The only reason he's going to kill Brum is because he gets threatened with that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not... Al has mentioned the Pinkertons before in previous episodes, and it's the one thing... He, he just can't have that. In order to maintain what he has, he can't afford to have the Pinkertons come out and start snooping around and things. Um, so he has Dan go out and reconnoiter the rim, which is where we get our episode from. It's always great when the episode itself mentions the title and it's, I, they do it here. Uh, b- before they get to that point, I did also really love, um, <clears throat> when Brom goes in to talk to, uh, Al and Al says something to the effect of like, Dan said, you never showed up. He thought the worst. And then he turns to Dan, who's across the room and he goes, didn't you Dan? And Dan's like, I'm so glad you're alive. Yeah, like, no, he, he, he like goes, they, he goes, he goes, Dan, Brahm's alive. He goes, thank God. <laughs> yes, yeah. Like there's no, that's uh, another Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, never open your mouth until you know what the shot is. Yeah. And Dan, Dan always knows what the shot is. <laughs> yeah. And I like his um, sort of fake putting up a fight. He's like, he's like, I was out there all morning, Al. I don't want to go out there and reconnoiter the rim again. He's like, would you go? Yeah, I'll go. Um, yeah, the, uh, so Brom is sent off. Brom completely fails at understanding what the situation is. So, okay. So the assumption on Al's part was that this thing that Garrett bought was nothing. Right. Right? Yep. And so his plan was just to get him to blow a shitload of money and then eventually this guy would just give up and leave? Is that what his plan was? Yeah, he he sold a lemon to him and was expecting him to just think that he couldn't find any gold and to fuck off and to not really, certainly not to challenge him about getting his money back. That's interesting to me because you'd think Al would be more receptive to buying it back at like a much, much, much discounted price. Just you know, to make half the money, you mean? Yeah, or or to even three three quarters of the money, and then I mean, I guess he could always I, just I, kill the guy, which is what he does. Yeah, but. no, I think Brom wants the entire bit of money back, and I think it's more, 
It's more about tying up the loose ends of you can't allow him to continue to be a threat to you. So he has to Well, go. I was just thinking like strategically, I was thinking, well, I mean, if he sold it to one guy, why couldn't he sell it to another guy? So if Garrett comes back and he's like, ah, this isn't for me. I'd like my money back. I think I've been had. And then Al is like, listen, I would love to, I, I can give you 5000 for it. That's my best offer. And then Garrett maybe is smart enough to say, okay, fine, and then leave. Then Al has this uh, gold plot that the next jackass who comes in looking to do a quick thing, he can run the scam again. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I get the impression Brum wants all the money back. Like yeah. there, mm-hmm. There's not going to be a way that he can just get a little bit of it back and then continue on his way and now can just redo the con again with them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the... The more sort of like narratively confounding bit is that after they kill him, gold is obviously discovered there, which goes to mm-hmm. Alma at that point. Um, yeah, which is which is funny too because it's one of those things where if if Garrett actually was a better such job, a, yeah, if he wasn't <laughs> such a smooth-handed guy and actually did what he was supposed to do and knew what he was doing, he would have ended up with a shitload of gold and he'd still be alive. Yeah. At least until they found out there was a shitload of gold and yes. then they killed him. <laughs> then, then, then someone <clears throat> sent in to take care of, of things. Yeah. Uh, it sets up the ending sequence, which is a juxtaposition of Dan Doherty leading Brom to the rim to be killed and Al interrogating Farnham. Mm-hmm. Um it's constructed in such a way that you think two murders are going to happen in that sequence where the uh, Al is being threatening and sort of toying with Farnham about whether or not he knew anything about the Bella Union coming in. And Dan is leading Brom, obviously, to his death. And uh, it keeps cutting back and forth between the two of them. Dan kills Garrett, uh, throws him off the cliff, and then finds the gold and then caves in Garrett's skull by banging it on a rock. And on the other hand you're seeing the other path of ways that things could actually work out, which is that Farnham in an attempt to save his own skin says, um, you know, short of burning everything down, you kind of have to trust somebody. Sometimes he takes the mm-hmm. anti Joker from dark Knight argument. <laughs> you tell me, Al. have you a doubt or misgiving? You tell me generally, if I have a misgiving or a doubt, I kill the cocksucker I have a doubt and misgiving about. These are special circumstances. I don't know what you mean by special circumstances. If I want to, I can burn the whole fucking camp down. Yes, you can. Cut your throat first and then burn down the whole fucking camp. You can. So I don't know what the fuck you mean. I mean, short of burning it all down, you gotta trust someone. And he is trying to, he is selfishly trying to save his own skin, but it does convince Al, and it's the turning point for Al as a character there, which is that realization that you can't kill everybody all the time to get out of this, and eventually things are going to have to start working together to create some kind of system where there's like a little bit of harmony going on, and it's just not everyone has to, everyone who's a threat to you has to go because that's going to lead to its own kind of problems. Um, and he recognizes it there. Farnham is spared uh, with the excellent runner that I. It's another funny line in the show is just the uh, do not repeat back to me the thing I just said with different fucking yeah. words. And he says that it a bunch was, of times to, to Farnham. That's, that stuff was really good. I, <laughs> yeah. And the, the final one is he, he's, he's, he says, he's like, keep an eye on him. He's like the Bella Union folks. And he's like, you just can't help yourself, you motherfucker. <laughs> um, and so he's spared. And that's it. And uh, 
Did you do anything? Any thoughts about that before you get to the actual final scene, which is just Trixie and Al? Do you have anything about the uh, the the juxtaposition of those two, Dan Doherty killing and then not killing Farnham? Uh, no, I think I think it was a good. Um, I think it was a good uh, tension run because you've got. I think you know what's going to happen to Garrett, but I don't think you know what's going to happen to Farnham. So. Uh, it it kind of works on both levels of of building tension about what the scene what's going to happen in the scene. Yeah, it's a it's. I mean, it feels certainly feels like they both have to die. That kind of feels like an HBO early two thousands trick to do. There, it's mm-hmm. sort of um, spoiler for the wires, but it's kind of similar to like the Avon and Stringer storyline in season three, towards the end of it. There, where they're both plot lines are running concurrently mm. with the same thing coming out of it. Yeah. Um. Why does he trust Dan? Like, what did Dan ever do to make him trustworthy? Swearingen? No, uh, Garrett. Oh, I, I mean, he, I guess he, nothing. Like, just as much like as Swearingen did, though. I mean, that's that's the Brom thing, is that he thinks he can yeah. just go off and do this with Dan Doherty. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing, too, is like, if he goes in there thinking that Swearingen is trying to screw him. No, he doesn't he get it. That's the th- you know that's what Bill was t- while Bill was talking about is he, he this guy just does not understand what's going on. Yeah. I like, I like the, after the top of the hike, Brum's like, "Whew, what a hike!" Oh, Dan, no, Dan, no. Yes, the rocks are right off the mountain. <laughs> I man, I love the scene when Alma's watching him almost go in to yep. the saloon. Thinks like better it's of two- it. Yeah, it's two episodes in a row of people who who want to throw down with Swearingen who can't bring themselves to do it because they know that he's such a uh, a tiger. Yeah, also um, kind of a trick because you think at that point he's abandoned the idea for good, right? He's just kind of going to walk yeah. off and, and not go back in there, but he he does. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and I think it's also a nice juxtaposition as well as well to him to uh, Swearingen going across the street to see someone who who does know exactly what kind of person swear engine is including how much shit he's full of yep yep yeah (laughs) brahm talking to himself with a cigar walking around in the the streets um sets up the final everybody in that whole town must have thought that guy was a fucking asshole (laughs) (laughs) well you were um we had mentioned in the the other episode you were asking if Bullock was the most out of touch with the town, and I think neither of us remember that Brom is probably yeah. the most out of touch with the town. Yeah, weirdly enough, Alma is a lot more in touch with the town than he is. Yeah, and she hasn't even left the room. No, she's fucked up. She's she's high high shit. That and quite a difference in um, Farnham has one fancy room, I guess. Like the other rooms are are shithole prison cells, yeah. and this one is is decorated to the nines. I don't think that's nice all theirs. They can't possibly travel with all that stuff. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, actually, that brings me up to another question I had, which was uh, they have that line about, um, <clears throat> um, I think it's Charlie talks to Seth and Saul about going, going. I don't know, somewhere to get a bunch of supplies and if they need to resupply. Yeah, he's setting up, Charlie Utter's setting up a, uh, a mail run, basically. He's going to yeah. be like a freight, a, a freight uh, company. And I did find myself thinking, how the hell are they going to restock that store? Yep. Like, Let's go to I, Cheyenne. Yeah, yeah, I assume they have something set up. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. But that was one of those things just in the era that this takes place in, I hadn't considered until that talk where I was like, yeah. I mean, these guys brought in like one, two wagons full of stuff. Yep. 
and they sold a bunch of shit the first couple of days they were there. <laughs> how are they how are they going to keep going for the next month, you yeah. know, unless they go back and someone goes back and gets a shitload of dimes. Yeah. No, they uh maybe that's why Al gave up on the 50% of your net until the end of the first snow of winter or something. He mm. just realized they didn't have anything left. I know that we haven't talked about it. Another good scene with uh, where they sealed the deal there. Um mm-hmm. maybe just briefly to tie it all together it's uh you know the the reverend continues to give sermons and give speeches that sum up and expose the themes that are underlying everything in that earnest way that he does um and this one he says everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the lord through hand uh though hand joined in hand he shall not be unpunished by mercy and truth is inequity purged, and by the fear of the Lord do men depart from evil. A man's ways please the Lord when he maketh even his enemies be at peace with him. Um, Seth reacts badly to that, but it ties into, you know, thematically what they're talking about is that, like, in order to make this whole thing work, that they're in order to make this town work, they have to sort of put aside these petty differences and work together in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And it's here, Seth takes that to heart a little bit. And when Swearingen starts getting difficult because Swearingen is trying to prove that these guys are in cahoots with the Bella Union crew and he doesn't allow them to sell to them, uh, Seth Seth goes back on his pride there and gives a little bit of generosity to him and says that we won't do that. And at that point, Swearingen turns around and says, okay, maybe you can sell because it was just a test in the first place. Um, Yeah, I I still think Al is completely well within his rights to be as weird with them as he's been especially when those when the bell union shows up and he's like what the fuck yeah these guys just rolled in and then all of a sudden these other guys roll in yeah what's going on yeah it's a little bit of a you know it shows a little bit of how al is off his game by them showing up because he's wrong about seth and saul too and he's kind of flailing at that point as to trying to figure out what's going on and uh farnham is hoping he'll pin it on seth and saul but it doesn't actually it doesn't work out that way for him unfortunately so they get their they get their lot that they can build on by the end of it um, and then moving into the final scene, which is Trixie shaving the calluses off of Al's feet <laughs> as he, as he's talking about, um, every fucking beating I'm grateful for every fucking one of them, get all the trust beat out of you. And then, you know what the fucking world is. Uh, and he's kind of ranting about this. Uh, I just love this sequence because it's completely showing the sort of flip-flopping of what Al is thinking in his head where he's. He's saying something like that about be grateful for all the beatings to the woman that is still bearing the bruises of what he did to her as she mm-hmm. shaves his feet. And he's talking about he can't trust anybody. There's nothing being trust. Like get the trust beaten out of you and you see what the world actually happens and what the world is. Um, after the scene, after Dan comes in and explains the gold, it shows the shift in Al's perspective there, which is that he comes back to Trixie and he realizes that she's in a position literally where she has a knife to him. And he is oblivious to the fact that he actually trusts her. And mm-hmm. when she says, should I do your other foot? He says, yes, please. And then the, the cuts to black after that. But it's, it's a nice like, it's just showing his development basically, which is going from like this cutthroat lone wolf thing of rugged individualism in the Wild West, you know, silent laconic hero, except he talks a lot, going into this, we're trying to build something. Even if I'm not aware of it, after a minute's worth of thought, I have to see what's in front of me at this point. Right. Yeah. And this is how we have to build things going forward. And this is someone I trust. Maybe there are other people out there that we can actually work with too, whether or not we trust them or not. 
was uh, this is not related to that, but I was just curious. <clears throat> did Power was did Powers Booth die before the movie? The the actor did he die before the movie? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he did. Oh, that's too bad. I don't think he's in the movie. I'm pretty. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's he's no longer around. So we won't be there at the end of this uh, podcast. I, think, I guess Ricky Ricky Jay probably died before the movie. I think. I think right? he was more recent than Powers Booth, wasn't he? Let me see. Ricky Jay, Deadwood, movie. Although he. Yeah, I won't talk about it just because I, I guess it doesn't make too much sense to talk about it. Um, but we're not gonna, we're not, certainly not gonna see Powers Booth, I don't think, in the movie. Hopefully, I'm not wrong mm-hmm. about that. Seeing as how I'm turning into Al Swearingen, I'm just gonna start flailing whether or not I know what's actually out there. <laughs> uh, that's it. Any thoughts about the end scene there? They got gold, they found gold on Brum's claim. <laughs> the gold, the amount of gold they find in this show is hilarious. Yeah. Like well, it th- is that was just gigantic. a speckled rock, I think. Like the, he found that oh, okay. the flakes. Because I, I was going to say that was a gigantic <laughs> piece of gold. I, I would hold it against Brom if he did not find that. But it, I, I remember the first time watching the show, actually not being clear what was going on because he's in the middle of the night sorting yeah, this stuff it, out. It he's like tough, digging yeah. through mud. It's hard to, and he doesn't. You know, I, I don't know if it's it's not a hallmark of quality and the show thinks it doesn't need to do it, but it would be nice to have like an 80-yard line of Dan just going, oh my God, look at all the gold or something like that. Just to, to <laughs> gold! <laughs> so is that, that's what he's doing when he's when he's messing around the mud is he's he's looking for... He's, yeah, he's he finds, because he finds the little piece and then he's like, this must have come from somewhere. And he goes uh, up the hill and he digs through the mud and he finds lines of uh, veins of gold in the rock. Okay, I didn't understand that either then because I thought he was trying to like, cover his tracks somehow in, in the way that he killed him or no something. that's I why mean, he's so that's why he just lets him suffer a little bit longer because he's so distracted by finding the gold at ah, first and then he comes back okay. to yep. uh and if we haven't mentioned ellsworth sees that murder and is he's hiding in the woods and he sees it um, hopefully is ellsworth smart enough no that's probably not the answer is probably no I like the so little. Try- his dog doesn't like Dan Doherty. His dog runs yes. away when Dan yeah. Doherty appears. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think if Ellsworth, Ellsworth is smart enough to leverage that, but I don't know if there's a way you could leverage it that doesn't end up with you getting killed. Well, Ellsworth a couple episodes ago too said that if 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 it's not his business, he doesn't get involved in it. So it's his true. It's his character. True, but I'd be surprised. I it, if he doesn't get involved, I am assuming it comes out. After he's been drinking or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think he's just going to sit on that information. Yep. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a, he's got a line of credit down at the gem head back there. Although maybe he's going to have a good day and he can make it over to the Bella Union and live the, live the high life. Miller high life. Yeah. What could you? No, I don't know. Well, we don't know what kind of person Tolliver is yet as far as how. Uh, you don't get a lot how, out of Tolliver in this no, one. Not too much anyway. I, we, we don't know if he's quick to, as quick to kill someone. Right. As swear engine is, because I was saying, well, you could go to the Bella Union with that information, but if you tell them, they might just kill you too. Yes. I guess the only person that makes sense to actively go to it with is Seth, but why would he do this? He doesn't know who Seth is. No. <clears throat> yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah that's, that's Ellsworth, tough. Ellsworth doesn't have too much of a connection to anybody at this point. It's really just the gem. It doesn't talk to anybody else. Um, I think that's it. That's all the plot lines, right? Did we miss anything? We covered Bill, covered the Garrets, covered Seth and Saul, get their yeah, store. I think that's it. I think that's pretty much everything. So uh, any final thoughts about this one, reconnoitering the rim? Good stuff. Good yeah, show. it's good. 
Um, yeah, I really, um, I just, I, I really enjoy the show. Uh, yeah. the, the hour flies by. It's like, yeah. it's when the ending comes, it's like, oh, that, that was quick. I, I was expecting more to come out of it, but they're full hours and they just, they fly by the, um, I, I've been doing a certain thing. I, I watched them twice or I've watched everyone twice so far. And the first time I sit and I just kind of watch it normally. Uh, the second time I watch it with subtitles mm-hmm. and I don't think, I don't pick up a lot, but I do pick up little details that I didn't notice. Like the, the big one for me is that it really clarified with the subtitles on what Farnham had done, which is that I thought on the first watch, he had just kind of connected them to Artie Simpson. He connected the Bella Union to Artie Simpson and like he didn't have malicious intent or anything. Mm-hmm. It took the second time with cr- subtitles to realize that they had approached him first about selling his hotel. Oh, I, I missed that too. Yeah, okay. And so the reason he passes it off to Artie is because he thinks that once once Artie sells his hotel, he will be the only hotel in town. So that's why he mm-hmm. makes the reference is that he's he's trying to make his own money, but he's not actively trying to fuck over Al, which is the difference between the uh, right, like what right. Al thinks is happening. So it's a little details like that. And you just get like the the their fucking dialogue is like so the lines are just so good. I don't the the uh like it's eminently quotable. Brahm has this fantastic line that's like very funny too. He said what's but it's also the way that all the characters speak. He says when he's talking to Alma, he says, If I'm stooped when you next see me, Alma, it won't be worry weighing me down, but bags of our recovered cold. <laughs> and it's just so it's just so perfect. The, you yeah. you you, uh, you will run your cunt mouth at me is so good. Um, I don't it's, know. Just their their dialogue is. I don't know if, if you have any yeah thoughts about it, but it's just I, yeah. I find it so quotable, and it's such a good mix of funny and uh, profound and impactful, and just the, the like the the word choice of it. Run your cunt mouth at me is just such a fantastic little line that sums up everything about him. Yeah, Yeah, until your son starts saying it. Yeah, well, he better not run his cunt mouth at me and I will (laughs) take it to play poker. Um, Yeah, I I think what's what's so uh, surprising about this show is for a show that does have such a hard edge to it, it is very enjoyable to watch. Yeah. And the the language, All the best dramas. You know, they're oh, yeah. funny. The best dramas are funny too. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. And I, I don't even I don't even mean like just from a, a a funny standpoint, but it's just like everything is just so smooth. And the dialogue, while also very uh harsh, is presented in such a way that it just is so smooth and so smoothly delivered and the lines don't feel uh like there is a certain kind of writing that I can't stand where it it actively feels like they are trying to be edgy and um uh uh that just Whedon thing that like, no no you know. no it's it's more like it's more r rated stuff where oh, it's, gotcha. they the the there's too much swearing and the swearing isn't like in the right place if that makes sense sure where it's just like it feels so stiff and and forced. Is it the? But I it, mean, people had a problem with the trailers for this when it came out because they cut the scene from uh, last episode where the where salt where Bullock and Swearingen are starting to negotiate. So it, it was cut like a trailer, but all they showed was the clip of Swearingen saying, "Here's my counteroffer to your counteroffer. Go fuck yourself." And people were going. Mm-hmm. 
is this show just think is this show just yes. trying to be hard edged basically yes that kind of stuff like the uh i think i probably brought this up before but the 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 big line coming out of the trailer for that titans show was when nightwing turns to the camera and says fuck batman <laughs> it's like uh <laughs> <laughs> this is really what we're doing here. And then I watched the show and it lived up to that where it's like the opening scene is one or lived down young, or lived up. Do you mean? Yeah. Li- either way. The opening scene of that show is one uh, Raven. I think her name is character with her mother being brutally shot in the head. Yeah. And it's just like, I guys, the one that really took me out was um, the opening scene of <clears throat> the walking dead. The very first episode of the walking dead which is Rick Grimes uh, walking through this like devastated area and he's presented with a a zombie like eight-year-old girl. And then like in slow motion, basically he shoots her in the face and like the back of her head blows out. (laughs) And it always just screams to me of people being like, I bet you never thought you'd see shit like this on television. Whereas this show, it's just like, it's so natural and it's so smartly written and it just flows together so well that it almost like doesn't even feel like profanity. No, it's because part of it, their, it's part of the culture, sort of. Yeah, it's like almost that. like poetry. Honestly, yeah. it's just so smoothly integrated into everything that it doesn't. Uh, you know, like it's. I hate the, it's. Um. The usually people use lines like that, you know, motherfucker, cocksucker, whatever, as like a real exclamation point on yeah. something where yeah. it's like something dun, 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 you motherfucking or you, bum, 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 you <laughs> cocksucker they do it all the time in wrestling whenever they want the women to seem like they're really throwing down they have they end their promo by calling the other one a bitch yeah and it's just like i yeah okay i see what you do but but the way that they do it in this show it's just part of the language it's it's the way a lot of real people swear yeah, which is just they—it's just in the middle of words, in the middle of sentences, and it just flows together beautifully. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's um, it's obviously part of the way that they all talk, and it's also shows that like the show also kind of understands that it's not the word itself, but it's the context of it. Like people, mm-hmm. people in the show will say the word "cunt," but it doesn't have the impact of when Wild Bill says run your cunt mouth at me right like there's right, there's like yeah. a difference with the delivery and things like that um yeah i i just think they're just the way the, the way that they speak is so uh just like beautifully fascinating i don't know i i just love the dialogue and i think he, he has some really fantastic lines and i think that they they talk uh wonderfully to each other um yeah my my final thoughts about this one oh i just and i wanted to <laughs> <laughs> to get the other um you were talking about some of the like the the walking dead and stuff being over the top like i what i love about deadwood is that i think it does what all the great dramas do which is mad men wire and stuff like that they they all have a there is a sense that the world is a realistic world that there is a variety of like opinions and outlooks on things in it hbo i think now and i've kind of talked about it before maybe on this podcast is like the Leftovers is a good example. Their first season was just relentlessly grim about the concept yeah. of the show. There was like, mm-hmm. no one was happy about it. There was just misery everywhere. No one was making money off the fact that people had disappeared. Like, there was no positive spin from anybody. They fixed that later on, I guess. I could only watch the first season. I hated it because of how, like, bleak it seemed. But I feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot of HBO shows that are now, you know, I, 
maybe I said a detective goes back to their hometown. They're an alcoholic and everyone's miserable back there, right. like sexually yeah. abusing everybody. And it's like, what the fuck? Like no one's yeah. cracking a joke. No one's doing anything. Deadwood is filled with murder, prostitution, beatings, people being horrible to each other, like sexual abuse of children. But all the characters still have, most of them, except for a couple, still have like this, like glimmers of things can be better with them. And like Mm -hmm. moments of building friendships and moments of being with other people that they like and sort of the building of the society and everyone coming together. And it just feels more true to life than me. Even if they're the way that they talk is completely unrealistic and not natural sounding or not... um, not how you would expect people to actually talk. It doesn't really matter because the characters feel like they live in a real world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it. The only other, yeah, the other, only other final thought, and then we're done. Is um, I think it's it's an episode all about building trust, the intrusions of uh, society coming onto the individual, figuring out how this group is all going to work together, uh, like who to trust, who not to trust what the variations of trust are. I think you see sort of every version of a trusting relationship you can have in this uh, episode and all the different outcomes. Some lead to murder, some lead to good decisions, some lead to friendship. Um, And it's about building the building blocks of whatever this town is supposed to be. um, And how do you get there and stuff like that. So another good episode. Thanks you. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Reconnoitering the rim is done. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. If you want to support us, it's over there. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. And that's it. Check out the Star Trek show. Check out the horror show with Clay and Amanda, the Batman show with Clay and Sean. It's all at the Penske file.com. All the shows are over there. And Deadwood will continue with our next episode, which is called, what the hell is the next one called? Clay, did you have anything you want to say before we go? Check out the horror show where we are. Only shoot children in the face and say fuck a lot. <laughs> wow, you guys are some real motherfuckers over yeah. on that show. Yeah, you won't even believe it. <laughs> it's like, me and Amy were watching the uh, the Mister Show sketch the other day, where it's like the ad agency is pitching different commercials, and they're just well, one of them's the burger thing. And he's like, "This cocksucker dragged me down here. <laughs> fuck you, asshole." They're just eating a giant burger. Why are they swearing so much? I, I will say, you want to see a good example of the right way and the wrong way to do this stuff, watch any episode of Deadwood and then watch any Rob Zombie movie, and you'll yeah. see what I mean, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, Zombie's just so angry about everything. Right, yeah. Deadwood doesn't have that yeah. anger. That's that's the difference. I don't I don't have the I don't have the patience for just these angry things that are just angry all the time or like miserable about everything. Yeah. Um, why yeah. It's even within the context of a show, why watch twelve hours of just miserable people, basically? Yeah. My know. mother loves it. My mother loves the Rob more miserable Zombie or- show. <laughs> yeah, I, she's never crossed over the, into that, but she loves miserable stuff. Oh. Any, anytime anytime there's a story about someone who's just miserable for twelve oh, episodes. Like, like, she oh, loves like it. a voyeuristic news story or something like that, just about someone getting run over by a, a truck. No, just like shows. Anytime she's like, "Oh, I just watched this amazing show." It's about it's about a female detective who's constantly having miscarriages. It's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yep. The next episode is "Here Was a Man." Is the next one. So we'll be back with that episode. Thanks everybody for listening. Hope you're enjoying it so far. We will see you next time. <laughs>